It's a beautiful autumn afternoon and you're hiking some familiar trails in the woods and you're enjoying the leaves like you do every year. And, and then something really strange happens. A trail appears that you have never uh, noticed before. Uh, the trail looks narrow, rocky, strenuous, not very well traveled, and it's really, really steep. And many people walk just right by this trail But something inside of you says, I wonder where that leads. Uh, Something compels you to take the trail. So as you begin to climb, you start to sweat as your muscles strain and the trail ahead seems daunting and dangerous and you're slipping and you're tripping and you're banging your body against the rocks as you climb and you start to think, this trail is awful. Uh, why didn't I just stay down on the trails that I'm, I'm familiar with and comfortable with? But as you climb higher, you see glimpses of something through the, the trees, and something inside of you says, keep climbing. Keep climbing. And so right before you're completely exhausted, you reach a mountain summit, you stand on the peak, And as the view stretches on forever, the elevation leaves you with a feeling of both fear and joy. And you've never seen anything like it. And this new perspective from up there of the endless forest leaves you in awe. And before you enjoyed the forest from beneath the trees on the the trails that you were comfortable with, but now you marvel at how the trees unify to create a kaleidoscope of brilliant color. You marvel at what you hadn't ever seen before and how much you still don't understand of the immensity of this forest. All of a sudden it hits you, sometimes... The hardest journeys lead to the most beautiful views of God's glory. Sometimes the hardest journeys lead to the most beautiful views of God's glory. I know that understanding God's sovereign grace and election is a journey that is often rigorous. If you're struggling to understand, you're not alone. You are not alone. God loves his children even if they struggle to understand him. There is much about God that we just don't understand. God is an infinite being. We can't figure him out completely. And so we need to be humble. We need to trust him. We need to believe what he tells us in his word even if it doesn't appear to make sense to us. Oftentimes, the most rigorous journeys end with breathtaking views of God's glory. If the trail of God's sovereign grace and election seems too steep or severe for you, remember there are beautiful and glorious things awaiting those who keep climbing. Those who keep climbing. The summit view is worth it. The summit view is worth it. And here's what I hope you see this morning. The sovereign grace of God that elects and saves you is the sovereign grace that keeps you saved for the glory of Christ. Jesus said, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing 
of all that he has given me. The security of your salvation rests not in the strength of your commitment to God, but in God's commitment to you. Jesus is holding you. He will never loosen his grip on you. He said multiple times, I will raise him up on the last day. He said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus said that. He was being serious. Take comfort in this. If grace put you into God's hand, then grace will keep you in God's hand. Your salvation is not about your grip on God. It's about God's grip on you. God has given people to Jesus to save because he loves them and desires to keep them for himself forever. And if you cannot see God's love in his sovereign grace and election, then you need to keep climbing. You need to keep climbing. I want to show you six things that God's sovereign grace and election do for you that will comfort your soul and lead you into more joy in Christ. God's sovereign grace and election, number one, safeguard our salvation and unity. Jesus prayed with all his heart, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's big. That's big, 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 and it's too much for us to handle today. All right, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, which explains why in verses 15 through 19, Jesus prayed for his disciples' holiness. God calls us to holiness for we were made to reflect his holiness. How is our salvation safeguarded by God's sovereign grace and election? How does that work? Jesus prayed, keep them in your name, which you have given me. To keep is to protect, it's to preserve. God's name represents all that God's, God is, the fullness of his being, and Christ is the revelation of the fullness of God's glorious name. Through Christ, the disciples belonged to God, belonged to the Father, and Jesus prayed that the Father would keep them and preserve their vital relationship with the Father. Christ, Christ put no confidence in these men. His confidence was in the keeping power of God's grace in these men. And their perseverance in Christ, that they would stay at it and stay in fellowship with God, even in persecution, depended entirely upon election and God's keeping grace. Not only does God the Father keep them, but Jesus keeps them. Look at verse 12. During his time with his disciples, Jesus kept them in God's name. See, the presence of Jesus has a keeping and a protecting power. The presence of Jesus has a keeping and protecting power. That's why you need Jesus so much in your life. That's why he's so precious to us. Jesus added, I have guarded them. 
I have guarded them. Armed guards are hired to keep people safe. And Jesus had protected and preserved each of his true disciples against apostasy, against desertion, against being totally ruined and dying in their sin. Remember, Jesus doesn't lose any of whom God has given him. How comforting his words still are for us, not one of them has been lost. What will it take for us to believe that? Not one of them has been lost. I have lost none of them. God's people don't get lost again. They don't walk away. They don't commit apostasy. And the people that we know that, man, they seem to be serving Christ and then they just completely made a train wreck of their lives, they never knew him because God's people don't leave because his grace keeps him. Jesus doesn't lose any of those that God gave him. Election provides protection. Election provides protection. Naturally, we might ask, what about Judas? What about Judas? Was Jesus sent to save Judas and didn't? Couldn't? No. Jesus said, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture? Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That was written about Judas before Judas was born. And in John 13, 18, Jesus applied those Davidic lyrics to Judas. Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8, both refer to Judas. And Acts 1:20 applies those two psalms to Judas. Understand what Jesus is saying. Judas perished in order for those Old Testament scriptures to be fulfilled. It's mysterious. It's hard to understand. I cannot fully explain it to you. Judas's betrayal was decreed by God. It was written into God's sovereign plan and purpose before the foundation of the world, and Jesus knew that it was coming. He wasn't surprised by Judas' betrayal, yet Judas freely chose to betray Jesus Christ and perish, and Judas is responsible completely for his actions. Judas did what he wanted to do, and God didn't coerce his will. One of the tensions we feel with election or between election and man's will and responsibility, when, when we see these two things that God elects and man is responsible, we start getting uncomfortable and we can't work those out intellectually. There's tension there. How can man be responsible for his actions if God decreed the actions of men? I can't resolve that tension for you. I'm not the guy. But we know from Scripture that God decreed that Judas would betray Christ and perish, and Judas freely chose to betray Christ and perish. Jesus called Judas a devil and the son of destruction, or you could say the son of final spiritual ruin and damnation. That's what the word means. That was his true identity, and that's also who Ju Judas chose to be. 
That's any of us without God's sovereign grace and election. Jesus chose Judas as one of the 12, absolutely. But he said in John 13, 8, very interestingly, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, Jesus said. Jesus didn't choose to save Judas. No matter what you believe about election, the fact is Judas was destined to perish and Jesus never saved him. Either Jesus couldn't save him or Jesus chose not to save him. What direction would you go with that? Either Jesus couldn't save him or he chose not to. Think that through. Study the Gospels. You'll see that Jesus never tried to stop Judas. Jesus didn't keep Judas. Jesus didn't guard Judas. Jesus didn't pray for Judas Jesus only kept and guarded and prayed for those whom the Father had given him. Judas was the world. Judas was the son of destruction. Can you see that in the scripture? What's comforting about this? How is this helpful? Without election, everybody is Judas. Without election, everybody is Judas. It's only because of God's sovereign grace and election that any are rescued and kept for Jesus Christ. We might ask, why didn't God save everyone? But shouldn't we be asking, why did God save even one? If you understand human depravity and our sinfulness, isn't that the better question? The disciples didn't sit around that night furiously debating election. Because Christ's prayer blessed and comforted and strengthened them. He was praying for them. What child, when he receives Legos at Christmas from his parents, gets mad at his parents for not buying Legos for all of his friends at school? Kids do not do that. They are excited that they received Legos at Christmas. You make the connection. Jesus also prayed for their unity. Keep them that they would be one, even as the Father and Son are one. God chose them and kept them so they would be one like the Father and the Son are one. May I just say, unity is so vital and essential to the church. Unity. God chose us and Jesus died for us so we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. One, my friends. Our unity glorifies God because it reflects the unity of Father and Son. So Jerusalem Church, do whatever you have to do to be united as one. I beg you, We are one, and we must live like it. Do whatever you got to do to preserve unity. God unites us in mind, will, affections, purpose, love, mission. 
all of which reflect the oneness of God. God keeps us in his name by his powerful grace so that we can be one with Christ and each other. There is nothing more that Satan wants to do in a church like ours who is making changes to be more faithful to Jesus Christ, to move forward on mission, to reach more people for Jesus Christ than to divide us, than to get us bickering and fighting and and to get us thinking, I want this, but no, I want this. If we can't work it out, it breaks up our mission and our unity to move forward in the cause of Christ, to see more people saved. That's why we're making changes at this church. We want to be healthy. We want to be faithful. I'm pleading with you. Get on board. It's Jesus. 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 The security of our salvation and oneness is locked within God's sovereign grace and election. We must keep climbing up. God's sovereign grace and election, number two, infuse Christ's joy in us through God's word. Jesus prayed, but now I am coming to you. He was going home to his father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus spoke the word of God so that his disciples would have his joy in them, the fullness of joy. Jesus spoke God's word to fill them with unfathomable joy. This prayer and everything that Jesus said in the upper room was for their greatest joy. God's sovereign grace and election are true because God makes them true. And therefore, they are intended to lead people to their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ. When Jesus spoke, his aim was to infuse his disciples with his joy. Remember, he told them earlier, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Full. Are you open to the idea that God's sovereign grace and election lead to joy. Are you open to that? Do you believe that everything that Jesus said was good? Do you believe that? Because you're going to have to wrestle with some very difficult things that Jesus said. Jesus spoke some very tough things. Things that rattled people so much, they stopped following him. I don't need to hear this. I'm going home. And they turned back. That happened in John 6. And what Jesus said in John 6 actually really related to election. So if you go back and read it through the content of what we just, you're going to see that people didn't like this type of God's sovereignty and they turned and went home and didn't follow Jesus anymore. I find that so intriguing. Please don't turn away from God's sovereign grace and election before you see where they lead. Every word of Jesus, if it is received by faith, leads to everlasting joy. Keep climbing. Keep climbing. The view from the summit is breathtaking. God's sovereign grace and election, number three, provoke the hatred of the world. Oh, if this wasn't true, it would be much easier He said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, 
just as I am not of the world. They are not of the world, just as I am of the world. He said it again. Jesus mentioned these things before. The 11 were chosen. They were rescued out of the world by God and were no longer of the world. They didn't belong. Jesus kept saying that. He wanted them to hear it. You know, if you're like me, sometimes you have to hear something a bunch of times in order for it to really sink in and for you to get it. Jesus had given them God's word, the truth, and the world hated them because God rescued them out of the world. Like Jesus, the disciples were not of the world. Listen to the parallel from earlier in the conversation, John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, Jesus told them, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. God's election infuriates the world. Not because they're sitting there wanting so desperately to be chosen by God. They hate God. They don't want to be chosen. They aren't chosen. They hate because God's chosen people are united to Christ and they hate Christ. MS-13 is probably the deadliest gang in the world. You do not want to mess with these guys. They are extremely violent. If you were a member of MS-13 and you had a change of heart in the middle of all that and you're like, you tell them openly, hey guys, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and leave and I really want to get a job with the FBI. Um, how do you think the gang members would respond to you? In 2006, one of the founding members of MS-13 was murdered for not attending a prison release party for a fellow gang member and for threatening to study law and work to keep children out of gangs. The world doesn't like people who dissent and desert. Christians are the light of the world, and when they shine in dark places, people's eyes begin to hurt, and they become very, very irritable. The world hates Christians because of who they have become in Christ, who they are in Christ. The difference is unacceptable to them. The world is a hostile place for those whom God has given to Jesus out from the world. God's sovereign grace and election, number four, Protect us from something infinitely more serious than temporal persecution and pain. What Jesus said in verse 15, it could totally change your perspective this morning. Maybe on a lot of things. Maybe on your life in general. So please hear this. Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus didn't ask God to remove them from the threat of the world. To make it safe, to make it okay, to make it comfortable. That's not what he was praying. He wanted them to stay in hostile territory. Think about that. Their immediate comfort and safety weren't his concern. Jesus knew there was something infinitely more threatening than their temporal and momentary affliction. What was it? Evil. Evil. The Greek words uh, to paniru can mean evil or the evil one. So you will see that in different translations. It's either the evil uh, one or evil. It can mean both. Either translation works and both are true. 
Jesus most wanted God to preserve them from evil. Something in the middle of painful, uh, sometimes in the middle of painful circumstances in our lives, we start to think that God has abandoned us. Where are you on this, God? Isn't that real? Have you ever been there? I mean, that's real. Has God abandoned us, left us? And that's probably because we fail to remember that God's greatest desire is not our comfort in this life, but our perseverance in holiness. That will rock your world. Election protects us from evil and activates our holiness. Think about what Jesus was saying. Some things are infinitely worse than being persecuted or killed for Christ. Being completely overcome and destroyed by sin is much worse. Greed is infinitely more dangerous than beheadings. Lust is infinitely more dangerous than being shot dead on the street. Satan is infinitely more dangerous than sharing Christ at an ISIS get-together. Evil is life-threatening. It's eternity-threatening. But our God will keep us from evil. A little rhyme will help you remember. God will protect all of his elect against evil. God will keep each of his dear sheep. Election is for protection. God's sovereign grace and election become our impenetrable refuge against Satan and all evil. God's sovereign grace and election, number five, work through God's word to sanctify us. Don't be scared by big theological words when you see them. Just do some work to understand them. There are things called dictionaries. There are things called Bibles And if we use them when we get to a big theological word, don't critique the guy who uses it or the scripture that contains it. Do some work to understand it yourself. All right. Learn them. The Greek verb, hagiazo. You don't have to learn Greek. All right. There's a lot of other ways to get the information. It means sanctify or to make something holy or to purify. It can also mean to separate from profane things and to set aside for God's purpose, to dedicate to God. Jewish priests were sanctified and set apart by God to serve him as priests. The furniture of the tabernacle was sanctified or set apart for God. Here's what Jesus prayed, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Then jump down to verse 19. And for their sake I consecrate, or you could say sanctify, same word, myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Remember, Jesus was praying for all the people that God had given him out of the world, that God would set them apart, that God would purify them in the truth. You see, sanctification and election are closely related. Let me show you how they're closely related. Romans 8 verse 29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, listen to this, this is the part linked to sanctification, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Can you hear that? To be conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of Jesus um, is God making you holy and more like Jesus. That's sanctification. 
Election activates sanctification. Or we could go to Ephesians 1.4, which says this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Can you hear sanctification? Being purified, God chose us before the foundation of the world in order that we would be sanctified, in order that we would be like Jesus. That's what Jesus was praying in John 17. Jesus was also asking God to separate them from profane things of the world and dedicate them to himself so they could serve him. Being set apart for God in sanctification is very similar to being chosen by God in election. One definition I read for sanctify was to purify internally by reformation of the soul. Who purifies and reforms the soul? Only God. Only God. God changes people from the inside out, not because of anything they do, but because he is awesomely good. Notice when Jesus What Jesus believes sanctifies or truly reforms people. It's not prisons. It's not self-esteem. It's not psychology. It's not higher education. It's truth. God's word. The truth. Jesus told his father, your word is truth. And in this context, that meant the Old Testament and the teaching ministry words of Jesus. Truth. God works through his word to clean people up. Why is biblical truth one of our core values here at Jerusalem Church? We take this very, very seriously. Why is biblical truth one of our core values? It's because God works through his word to conform his people's lives to Jesus. That's why we're serious about it. There is a direct correlation between spirit-led Bible study and holiness. And we want people to be holy, so we want people to study their Bibles and to know what's in it and to trust what's in it and to cherish what's in it and to believe what's in it and to stake their life what's in it. That's why we preach. That's why we spend so much time preaching and teaching at this church. I think some of you don't really believe that Bible study is important for you. And you might say, how do you know that? Well, because you study the Bible so little on your own. Some of you, I think that's true. You just don't believe that it's really that important for your life. Bible study is essential to the Christian life. It's not about cramming facts into your head. It's about meeting God through his word, hearing from him, and being changed and reformed by his word. Listen to what the Bible says about this. Psalm 119, 9 and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you. John 15, 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 talks about Jesus dying for his bride, the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that the church would be splendidly holy and without blemish. James 1, 21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. 
which is able to save your souls. I cannot stress this enough. We must be people of God's word. We must crave it. We must cherish it. We must study it. We must know it. We must enjoy it because it sanctifies us. It makes us more like Jesus. Jesus knew that God's word is absolute truth. It doesn't uh, simply contain truth. It is the truth. Listen to how helpful Philippians 2, 14 14 through 16 is. Do all things without grumbling. Ouch. Guilty. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. How do we go about remaining pure and unstained amidst a twisted and crooked environment at work? with co-workers who don't like Jesus, with our friends who have potty mouths, with classmates, with uh, family members who don't love Jesus. How do we remain unstained by all of this stuff that barrages us in life? We must hold fast to the word of life. God sanctifies us through his holy word. Here's how you can tell who the world is. The world is everyone who doesn't want to hear the truth of God's word nor conform their life to it, period. That's who the world is. You can tell Christians very easily. Look at the word lovers who are trying with all their might to conform their lives to it. The world doesn't care about the Bible. They have no interest in being changed by it. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, Paul tells us. But every single one of the people that God has given to Jesus out of the world is being sanctified by the truth of God's word, or they will be. God's word abides in them. God's word challenges them. God's word changes them. God's word rocks their world from the inside out. There is something else to see here. Jesus also believed that they would be sanctified because of him. Verse 19, and for their sake, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus separated himself from the profane and dedicated himself to God for everyone whom God had given to him. Jesus was slaughtered, slaughtered as the consecrated sacrificial lamb for our sins so that we could be sanctified in the truth. You will not find a more loving act in all of history. Please get this. Jesus set himself apart to serve God by being the atoning sacrifice for God's elect. He was consecrated for the elect in order to make them holy and pure in the truth. Jesus didn't have to do that. Nothing compelled Jesus to do that. He was not obligated to any of us, but he did it. Election leads to sanctification. God's sovereign grace and election, number six, confirm our mission. Jesus prayed to his father. This is awesome. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Some people think that God's sovereign grace and election shut down evangelism. Why evangelize if God's just going to determine? Why do it? And 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 I've heard that, but that is such an immature view. First, we don't know who God's chosen people are. That's not for us to know. That's for God to know. God may save our arch nemesis co-worker. 
or mother-in-law or whoever else. I have a great mother-in-law, so don't read into that. (laughs) Don't do that. I have a great mother-in-law. I love her. Our job is not to figure out who's elect. Our job is to proclaim the gospel to the world. Second, God has chosen whom he will save, yes, but he also has chosen the means by which he will save those that he has chosen to save, namely the proclamation of truth by, get this, us. We are the mouthpiece of God at this point. Jesus is no longer here in the flesh. We are the light of the world. Because he shines through us. God sent Jesus into the world to seek and save sinners. He did that. These 11 men were sought and they were saved by Christ. You can see it all through the Gospels. And Jesus turned right around and he sent them out into the world to proclaim the Gospel. God sends all, all his people into the world as the voice of the Gospel. Election confirms our mission. Think about this. I really want you to think about this because I, I think this is going to actually help you. If God is not sovereign in salvation, okay, it's up to us. It's all the choice of man. If he's not sovereign in salvation, if he has not elected people unto salvation, what hope do we have that anyone will repent and believe and be saved? Where's your hope? Is there any? The hard, cruel world that you see making choices every day to, to just totally rebel against God, are they going to just all of a sudden change? Because they're like, yeah, this makes sense. Something happens to people when they change. And if you'd been converted and had like an experience, I grew up Christian family. Mine was not like some wild story on the streets of New York or something. But yours might have been a moment all of a sudden you just changed. And you're like, Jesus, man, it's all about him. What do you think happened? Did you wise up? Are you smart? Did you just figure it out? Or did God do something in you? Can we change someone's heart by if we just said it a little differently or, or, or maybe if I just was more polished as a preacher, more people would believe and take this seriously? You want to bear that pressure? Can people change their own heart? How many times have you pleaded out to God and just said, you got to do this in me because I don't want to do it? I've been there. And when God's grace comes, I change. What I do at all my own strength, guess what happens? I remain the same. All right? Can dead people choose to live? Can you just be honest about that? Because we're dead in our sins. Can we choose to live? Can, have you ever seen a corpse? Not done yet. They're up out of the funeral. Oh, yes. Nope, doesn't happen. Jesus sends us on a mission to reach the nations with the gospel and our confidence is that there are people out there that God has given to Jesus and we must go and we must get them. And our confidence as we go that we actually can do some good is election. I just ask that you think about that because I know the competing theology on this and I know what pressure it puts on you. You won't be free under the competing view of election. It's God's power that saves, so we go with the Holy Spirit and God's power. If he's going to save them, he's going to save them, but we're going to tell everybody until we're blue in the face about Jesus and allow God to work it out. And then maybe someday when we're with him, he'll help us understand what he was doing. Some of the changes we are making at Jerusalem Church are to help us become more effective in this mission of reaching people for Christ. You see, our church 
years before, maybe years before you, lost focus somewhere along the line. We lost focus that we actually exist to make a difference in the world and we're out there trying to reach people for Christ. We lost that urgency. And you know, we're regaining the emphasis back because it's the emphasis of Scripture and Jesus and God the Father and the Spirit and everything that you read. And so we're going to be that church and we will make the necessary changes in order to reach more people for Christ. And if you can see that and not be threatened by it and just instead say, you know, I think I see why they're doing that because I think they want to reach more people for Christ. Never to compromise the gospel. Never to compromise Christ. Listen now, Jesus connected election. We're almost done. Hang with me. And this mission of proclaiming the gospel to the nations. In John 15, 16, Jesus told the 11, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And here's where it connects. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Then in verse 27, he said, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. They were chosen and put on a mission to bear witness to Christ. Are you aware that God saved you for more than keeping you out of hell? He saved you to put you on a mission to reach others for Christ. This mountain of God's sovereign grace and election is big. Okay, it's really big, but the summit view is spectacular. I don't, un, I, I understand that I'm not answering all your questions. I know that. I am well aware I'm not answering my own questions, all of them. And I understand that there is more to be said. I understand there's more scripture passages. I, under, I understand that a lot more should be said. And I understand that this probably is really challenging you and it might be very hard for you, but you need to struggle with this question, what is true? What is God saying to me through his word? You start turning to your emotions, done. You start turning to God's word and truth. So you may not know right now um, everything there is to know. So keep climbing, keep climbing up so that in time you may be overcome with the glory of God's grace in election. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for being honest with us. And quite frankly, a lot of your honesty pushes us sometimes beyond what we feel we can bear. We read some things in Scripture that we're scratching our heads thinking, how can a good God do that? We don't understand. And you know what, God? Can, we're just going to be humble right now and say, we're the problem, not you. We don't know your mind. We don't know everything there is to know about you. We don't know how all the pieces fit together. We are left with a lot of questions. But God, there's one thing for sure that we absolutely know. Jesus reigns. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that if we just trust him and what he has said, even if we can't perfectly work it all out, that we actually believe the truth because he is the truth. So God, I pray that you humble each person here, including me, before your word, that we would be humble to study what's actually there, to believe what's actually there, and to treasure what's actually there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.